This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Judy Nunn, welcome to Better Reading. Good to be here, Cheryl. Hi. Uh, it's always lovely to see you again. Um, now, I'm going to introduce you to our listeners because there might be one or two people out there in the country that haven't heard of you. Uh, Judy Nunn was born to tell stories. Growing up near the banks of the Swan River, Judy was a self-confessed tomboy. She was always boating, swimming, fishing and crabbing with her brother Rob in their almost idyllic childhood. Young Judy wanted to follow the footsteps of her mother and be an actress, and so she did. After moving to London for five years and starring Shakespeare plays, BBC radio plays and television shows, Judy moved back to Australia. Since then, she has become a household name with appearances on shows like Prisoner, Sons and Daughters, The Box, Home and Away, and Home and Away. She also started her transition to being a writer by writing for Neighbours. I mean, that's pretty much all... Australian drama, isn't it? Yeah, well, you've got a, a very nice little handle on my past there. Well done. Haven't <laughs> I? Well, that's our research has done that. Now Judy's books have sold over one million copies. Her most recent edition is Khaki Town, based on the true Australian wartime story that has remained a secret until now. What a career, hey? Yeah, I've, been pretty, career. I've been very lucky choosing pretty two pretty dicey careers and coming yeah. out okay. Yeah. 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 Luck as well as hard work, I grant you that. Yeah. yeah. I like to work hard. So tell me yeah. when it, where it all started. Um, tell me about growing up and being a tomboy. Oh, well, tomboy is certainly the correct word for it, absolutely. There was nothing little girly about me at all, I'm afraid. Um I would have bashed the boys up if I had half a chance, but they were all older and bigger than me. I grew up with my big brother, as you mentioned, and also my male cousins next door. We were a real big sort of like a family commune, all the, the properties of three families, uh, literally no fences in between, a tennis no. court in the middle. Makes it sound a bit ritzy, doesn't it? Grass tennis court and right by the river. But, uh, no, we weren't. We, we were just very much middle class family. You working know. class. So yeah. what did your parents yeah. do? No, we weren't working class, but, but we were very middle class. Right. And, I mean, we sounded, because all that area around where it was in Claremont in Perth is yeah. now, is now all the old homes of, you know, Alan Bond and, and, uh, okay. and all the big rich. So people say, oh dear, you know, on Riverside at Claremont with a grass tennis court, you must have been really rolling. And it, no, my dad worked for the government. He was an agricultural scientist and, uh, you know, but we were, you know, we were just middle class and granny, grandma yeah. nun had this land that yeah. she farmed out as the, the children got older, well, yeah. my, my dad and uncles and things, farmed out to the various members of the family. So we all grew up in this great big area. <laughs> Yeah. In the middle of this ritzy suburb, um, it was—it really was idyllic. It was the most extraordinary childhood. Yeah. yeah. And what did your mum do? 
Well, Mum was a, a school teacher um, turned actress. Uh, ah, yes. So and the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. No, not at all. And also, she became um, one of the several people who started up uh, her first professional theatre, oh, the wow. Perth Playhouse. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and she was also a radio uh, producer director. They called them producers in the, those days. These days, director. And she directed uh, children's programs for the ABC. Uh, and so, yeah, she. So would, she had a career in her own right. Absolutely. Which, of course, if you look at in the this day and age, makes my father a rather understanding man. Yeah, it she, does. Because it would have been unusual. Yes, she was a, a housewife in yeah. the fifties, going into the sixties. The yeah. the theatre in Perth was set up in the sixties, um, and uh, with two children, and yet yeah. she was allowed to have her. Career. Yeah. She gave up teaching when she married my father to have children and be a be a housewife. And then when the kids were just a little bit, off, she, she went, went back for to another theatre. Well, she, she always wanted to act. And yeah. So Dad was a pretty understanding fellow. I feel quite modern about them. Yeah. Did you have a good relationship with both your parents? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's nice, isn't it? it was just a very very lucky childhood. Very fortunate with my parents. Do you know a lot of the writers that I speak with, and I speak to many hundreds over the year actually, a lot of their parents. One of one or both of their parents were teachers. Mm, I wonder if there's something in that. Yeah, 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 I hear that a lot. Well, I certainly know my mother just absolutely encouraged, like there's no tomorrow, my love of reading. Yes. You can tell when you see a kid, usually when they, they are at ease with reading, usually yes. about the age of eight or something, and they don't want to leave a book alone, yeah. you know. Uh, and I was like that. And yeah. I mean, the favourite presents, you know, birthdays, Christmas, anything was always books. I lived yeah. in books. And mum encouraged that like there's no tomorrow. Yeah, there's got to be, there's got to be a connection, I reckon. Um, and did you look at her in terms of acting and think what it, that's something I really want to do, just by watching her. Or look, I said, yeah, I, I did. My first professional job. I was twelve years old, and that was at the newly created uh, Perth Playhouse, and it was a very famous book, actually, by a, a German writer called Eric Kirstner, yes. called Emil and the Detectives. Yeah. Uh, yes, it's still very famous to this day, uh, and. Um, and they made it into a play, and it was me and seventeen little boys and a couple of grown I've grown up playing the baddie and that sort of stuff, you know. Uh, and that was my first professional job. And after that, I was hooked. And I think it was from seeing mum. Mum didn't encourage me at all. As a matter of fact, you know, she said, "Oh, you, you, you can't go anywhere near going into the theatre, dear, until you have a day job." You know, so a I real had, job. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. So mum was very practical, and dad said, <laughs> "Mum said, I think we'd better." Get her to audition for NIDA, Bob. There was the National Institute of Dramatic Art in Sydney. There was, in those days, of course, there was no drama school in Perth. There is now yes, WAPA, there is. which is fabulous. Yeah. Um, but uh, Bob said to Nance, Bob and Nance, dad and mum, and Bob said to Nance, he said, uh, no, no, um, I, I'm not going to. He said, if she wants to go to university, we'll send her to university. But he said, um, there's no living dressing up and pretending to be somebody else. That's a hobby. Yeah. <laughs> she would he love to see hear it. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, tell me about that. So <clears throat> being up on stage for your first time, had you practised? Like had you been acting before? Well, I'd seen mum and I'd been to the theatre a great deal. So, right. I mean, I knew what the theatre was and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, I was very okay. Were you scared? No, excited. No, yeah. No, I'd get more scared these days than I was then, I think. Yeah, wow. Yeah. That's courage, isn't it? <laughs> um, so when did you start thinking about writing? 
Uh, well, I I started writing my first book when I was nine. Right. As I so say, you peaked early. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty early. I knew Acting I, gig at 12, writing yeah. at nine, yeah. Well, I knew, I, I always say that I, I knew I was going to be uh, an actor and a, write, uh, and a writer. Uh, I didn't necessarily think a novelist, but I knew that I, you know. So you're going to write credit. something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, so I started writing my first novel when I was nine. And then I got glasses. This is another weird thing. The myopia thing is really, really weird. I believe that also is what led me to be completely involved in books. I'll tell you that one in a minute. I do think it's interesting. Yeah. And I've had other myopic people have agreed with me. But um, so I was writing my my own novel when I was nine, and then at ten I got glasses yeah. and could finally see for the first time. Don't ask me how I'd got away with it for that long, particularly with mum having been a teacher and everything. Wouldn't happen these days, but nevertheless. Um, and then I decided, uh, I, I, okay, I'll be an actor. So I went from being a writer to an actor from nine to ten. That's how it happened. But you see, with myopic kids, like any children with a, a disability, and I was so short-sighted, you could call it a disability, yeah. seriously disab- disability, but like a kid who, who, who has a hearing disability, for instance, they yeah. pretend they can hear. Uh, as a, as, as a person with very, very poor eyesight, very short-sighted, uh, we're standing on the balcony looking out over the river and mum would be saying, oh, darling, look at that beautiful yacht there with the yellow spinnaker or something. I'll be jumping around going, where mum, where, where, where mum, where? Very excitable kid. So mum's going to say, calm down, darling, just look where I'm pointing. Yeah. A lot easier for the kid to say, oh yeah, that's really pretty, because they don't know that they see differently from other people and they don't want to be different. And that can imbue in the child a sense of inferiority or perhaps I'm stupid or people might find, think me stupid. So kids become, even, I'm, I, I can't lie to save my, I'm, I'm not saying that's a virtue. Yeah. I'm simply no good at it. You yeah. know, I'm not, I'm not a devious person. Yeah. What you see is what you get. Yeah. That sort of thing. Now I would have been like that as a child. I became a very clever liar. I became a very clever little liar. I mean, seated in the classroom right up into going into junior school, you know, nine years old, that sort of stuff, I would I would always um, sit right down the front and uh, when I'm going into a new classroom, I would bags right up, right down the front. The teachers would like that because if I was up the back, I'd be talking all the time. I would be inattentive. Yeah. Well, nothing is gaining my attention. I can't see. Yeah. So if I'm seated down the front, even then, the big long blackboards, and of course you're very young, so they're writing in big print and yeah. stuff like that. Even then, I could only see dead in front of me. I couldn't see the blackboards at each end. So I'd, I'd get up with my little notebook and walk from one end to the other, and the teachers would think I was showing off. Truly. And I would have the perfect, how's this for the perfect, I'd say, no, seriously, where I am seated here, the light is coming through that window and it's flaring on those boards there. So I have to get up with, you know? Yeah. All of those things would be caught out these days, but they weren't then. Um, did you, were you worried about having glasses? What were you worried about? No, no. Well, well, once I could see, the gl- oh, yeah, very self-conscious. Yeah. I, I wouldn't wear them. I'd go into the classroom. and But then when you put them on and you can see, it's a whole new world. But that is what I mean by the books. When my, I kept getting run over on my bike, you see, which was a bit of a giveaway, and finally I rode the bike off a cliff at Rottnest Island off Natural Jetty, which is virtually. Wow, dangerous. And, and so Nance said to Bob, 
Bob, I think we should maybe have Judy's eyes tested. Yeah. And uh, when I finally did go to the optician, his own daughter is severely myopic. And uh, and he said to mum, he said, they knew each other, a small town in those days. And he said to mum, he said, uh, he said, oh, he said, it's amazing she hasn't been run over. And mum said, well, she has several times. <laughs> and minor little accidents and everything. And uh, he said, tell me. Uh, he said, does she live in books? And mum said, absolutely. And he said, that's actually a really big sign of myopia. Explain that to me. Well, because when you when you read a book and the yes. imagery is all there, yes. you're, you're seeing the imagery in your head, yes. not the way your eyes are seeing it, actually. That's all yes. I can. Yes. Yeah, and it is the total escape to a world of imagery that is just so clear in your, in your brain. But you can't, it's a weird thing to say, but you can't, you you can't analyze in a little a person who's been born with that you know lack of focal you know cohesion you can't think well that's not the way i see it it doesn't occur to you no it only occurs to you perhaps i would go to the movies seriously sit right down the front with my brother and uh, and uh, vaguely, I knew who Tony Curtis and Piper Laurie were in Prince Who Was a Thief and all of that, but um, I had cut-out magazines. I had film star magazines. I loved it because I'd read like this. I mean, two inches away, whatever mm. it is in centimetres these days, from my nose. Mm. You know, that wasn't even a giveaway. Uh, just an eccentric child who's hyperactive, you know, boom, boom. But um, I would know who the people were up on the screen. I was listening to a radio play with music and colour and everything. I couldn't really see the people, but you don't analyse that. Yeah, you don't have to either when you're reading it. No, but even in the movies. Even in the movies, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I because I knew it was – Prince Who Was a Thief was a big – that was just before my 10th birthday, I think. Uh, that's why it's vivid, but I remember – that I knew exactly who was in it because I had the pictures of them and everything like that. But I really couldn't see them. Now, in hindsight, I realise I couldn't really see no. them. But I. Hmm. Okay. All right. So tell me then. So <laughs> Long story. There, yeah, sorry. great story though. I mean, it's interesting <laughs> because I I really find that you know um with speaking with authors that you get so many uh, reasons. A lot of them have been children that have been avid readers <laughs> for various reasons. Yep. Some people have been isolated on property. Some people yes. like yourself. It was your vision. It's for all sorts of not not negative reasons, but they were readers and they were probably loners as children. Mm. Would you mm. have described yourself as a loner? Um, that's a very interesting one. Because as I say, I was a tomboy, yes. I was an extrovert. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of my problem wasn't picked up because teachers thought I was showing off yeah. or something like that because, in other words, I was not introverted. Yes. But uh, they didn't know I had a gorgeous hidey hole underneath the house. You know, mm. we had the one slightly bungalowy, old, yes. very old house and everything, and that was where I'd curl up with my books. Mm. So the books were my true friends. Yeah. Uh, and I, I would disappear with that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so... Um, when you became an adult, where did you decide, you know, was it writing first, acting first? Tell me about your career trajectory. Oh, no, it was certainly acting first. Certainly. No, the writing the writing took a back seat for a long time. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, it didn't really come into the fore. You see, I think actually that actors make very good writers. Um, because they're observers? Well, not necessarily as novelists, but certainly as scriptwriters, yeah. playwrights. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. 
because they're working the whole time analysing characters, uh, mm. they're working with dialogue, um, and particularly when you start out in the theatre, you're working with great, great playwrights like, you know, Shakespeare, Chekhov, Shaw, Ibsen. Right. I so want to you're talk working about, with psychologists. Yeah, I want to talk about your acting career first then. So how did you end up in London? Uh, oh, that was what uh, uh, young stage actors, well, there was virtually no film industry then right. here. Um, that was what young stage actors did. They took off to London to, you know, break into London theatre. Did you uh, have nowadays, any contacts? Did you have any? I mean, how I, do you arrive in a city yeah. and make a career? Yeah. I did actually through my mother. Yeah. Uh, I had a director that she'd worked with, Trafford Whitelock, and he was actually a, um, he was uh, one of the directors, if not the, the head honcho or whatever on Zcars. And he was also doing a lot with uh, BBC Radio. Uh, and I did radio series and, uh, you know, episodes of the Uneden Line and stuff like that. So I had a bit of. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I mean, I don't mean it was that easy. No. no I wrote, I think I, I took my faithful little Olivetti with me. and I Did typed, you? Yeah, typed yeah. up like 200 letters of application to various reps. Repertory right. companies. That's where you right. got your training all around the place. Uh, every, every major provincial town had a yeah. repertory theatre of which they were inordinately proud. And it was the wonderful starting way. And, you know, actually agents and directors would go to these repertory companies too, but you, you had to get in there. So I wrote about 200. And, uh, out of those, I think I got about five interviews. And out of those five interviews, I didn't get a job. Right. So, I mean, that's how you have to be hungry. Wow. Uh, that's what you say to every, every young actor. It's all very well to even the beautiful ones. The looks won't get you. They, all the, they really won't. And even the talent won't. You've got to be hungry. You've got to persevere and want it. So you didn't get a job? Uh, not to start with. I'm just saying no. those first 200. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, I did. I had a wonderful job. First was nine-month season in... Um, so that was... Tell me about your first job in London. Oh, no, the first job was actually... I nearly lost it because I laughed at the star. It was actually a job touring with Gaslight, wonderful right. old play called Gaslight, which is where the gaslighting term comes from. Yes. They made it into a movie of Ingrid Bergman, but it actually is from an original stage play, very old stage play. And uh, Wilf Wilfred Pickles, very famous old actor called Wilfred Pickles in the twilight of his career, was doing a, a big tour uh, playing the ageing detective bloke in Gaslight, etc. And uh, I auditioned for it because it was going to be one of those out-of-town tours. 
that the agent, I'd got myself an agent, uh, could get me into to audition for. And, um, and always with these tours, these rumors, they're going to come into town, you know, yeah. they invariably don't, of course, but you do the major tour circuit. And I did the audition and I, and I said, Wilfred Pickles. I said, nobody's called Wilfred Pickles. <laughs> And of course, Wilfred was such an immense name in Britain. This is in the sixties still. Yeah. He'd go, he'd go right back before then though. There was a cartoon that was a Wilfred Pickles cartoon in the paper as well as he had his own radio program and everything like that. And I just laughed at the name Wilfred Pickles. I nearly lost the job before I had it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, okay. So you worked, you had a healthy career in Mm. London. Yes. Which isn't easy. Mm. And then you came back to Australia and tell me how you picked up acting here. Oh, well, I was very fortunate. Um, when I came back, um, there'd been this uh, renaissance in Australia. I mean, suddenly the film industry had taken off. There's, you know, Charlie, Jimmy, Blacksmith, you know, Weird, yeah. and Never, 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 and all of Picnic at Hanging Rock, all these one, and, and playwrights. Yeah. Uh, and of course, first of all, was, uh, David Williamson leaving, leading the troops. And, uh, his first uh, huge success, Don's Party, had taken off and was at the Sydney Opera House. Uh, and, uh, it was just about to go out on a national tour. And, um, uh, John Clark, with whom I had worked, he was the head of NIDA, um, and I'd worked for him in the old Tote Theatre Company. My first job when I came to Sydney in, in a play called The Representative, because I worked in Sydney for three years before taking off for London. And, uh, so I said, oh, well, I've got, they, they were going off on this nine months big national tour of David Williamson's first hit. And, uh, the two of the company couldn't go on the tour. Uh, so I auditioned for one of them and Nolene Brown auditioned for another one. That's where I met the darling Nolene. Right. And uh, so off we went on this nine month tour and I got exactly the role I wanted. So that was straight virtually the moment I got back into Sydney. And then that nine month tour finished in Melbourne. We did a, re- a return season in Melbourne. It was so popular. And uh, while I was doing that return several weeks in Melbourne, I auditioned for a show called The Box. Wow. So then there was that transition to television. Yeah, wow. And really, you didn't stop working from then on, did you? No. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty lucky in such a dicey profession. Mm. Mm. Acting and writing. Mm, yeah. I mean, you know, you don't wake up in the morning thinking, how will I get rich? Or I think I'll write a book and be a writer or I think I'll put my hand up and be an actor. Not wise. No. Not very many people no. make a decent well. living. Yes. No. Okay, so tell me about your first book. Uh, Firstly, what was it called? Uh, well, I wrote a couple of children's novels, yes. you know, but um, no, first adult novel, I wrote The Glitter Game. Yes. And it was, uh, I'm allowed to say piss take, aren't I? Yes, it was of a total send up. It was satire, right. absolute satire of the television industry. Right. Uh, and it was very much, uh, obviously, I'm writing about what I know. I'm writing about the creation of a soap opera and uh, all of that. And, but it was, it was very much, uh, my knowledge in this area was drawn from, uh, from the box, which of course was a show in the seventies. And the box was a, you know, sexy, sinful peak behind I was the... never allowed to watch yeah. it. Never. <laughs> oh, you missed out on a treat because the box yeah. itself was satire. It yeah. was a real send up. My parents uh, just didn't yeah, get it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, it was very naughty. Lots yeah. of nudity and all of that sort of stuff. But it was also really was again a piss take. It was very, very funny. Um, but, you know, it could be viewed either as a salacious soap or as a send-up of the industry. And so when I did Glitter Game, I was actually performing in uh, Home and Away. Um, and um, 
it had nothing to do with Home and Away, which in those days very much was a general family show. You had your grandparents and your parents and, your, you know, it wasn't the, the beefy, beefcake sort of thing it is today. It's very cleverly metamorphosed yes. through the years to meet the needs of, you know, and, and stay with the times like Kylie Minogue or Madonna. It's very clever, changes its guise. Um, but in those days, very, very feel-good family show. And, uh, and the producers... Of, of, uh, Home and Away thought, oh, this is a racy book, this glitter game. And they, uh, not the producers of Home and Away, the, sorry, the publishers. And the publishers thought, oh dear, this, it's racy. We better check it all out with the legals and make sure that there aren't any actors who are going to be offended. I said, it's got nothing to do with Home and Away. Don't worry about that. And they said, no, okay, back, there are many from the box still around, you know. And as it turned out, the only people who were a little bit miffed, uh, among all the acting fraternity were those who could not see themselves in the book. Oh, they wanted to be oh, in the yeah, book. Yeah, they. Yeah. Well, where am I? Which one am I, Judy? Yeah. Which one am I? Very funny. So the actor's ego. So, I mean, I, I have, um, uh, you know, uh, challenges in just juggling my own life, like in terms of career and, you know, home and family and whatever. But you were, you were acting pretty much. It was a full time job and you were writing at the same time. Yes, I had five books published while I was still doing Home and Away. Yeah. And that two years a book, that's 10 years out of yeah. the 13. Well, they call it 12, you know, in that, but it's actually 13 when you count the pilot as well. So, I mean, 10 of those years I was writing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good multitasking, isn't yeah. it? Well, also, Cheryl, I think it's, uh, and I, I say this with no intention to demean at all. I'm very, very proud of Home and Away. It's, it's record. It's keeping people in employment. It's, it's a and very successful. And launching careers. Isn't yes, it? Yes. yes, yes. And burning out a lot of youth too. There's yeah. a lot of people end up on the, mm. but, um, no, it's 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 done wonderful things, but I did I get end up getting pretty bored. Right. I got bored. So uh, and there's a lot of hanging around. Yeah, there's a lot of you know wait until you're called. Yeah, from, you yeah. Know. and uh, so I had it in my contract that I would have my own dressing room yeah. rather than go for a bit extra money or something like that. I'd say give me my own dressing room. That's why none of the others had their own. They had to share, yeah. you know, two a piece or something with the older actors. Uh, so it, that literally became my office. So that was obviously my uh, creative buzz. I was getting yeah. my creative buzz out of my new career, which is yeah. as a novelist. Yeah, it's clever. Mm. But I guess, you know, I mean, both both occupations in a way are storytellers, aren't they? Mm, they are. They are. And there's certainly, as you mentioned, word you mentioned earlier, there's certainly observations. Yeah. Uh, all actors observe all the time. All writers observe all the time. Everything goes down there in the back of your head for whatever, and it it pops up when you need it, you know. Mm. So, um, yeah, one really aided the other for me, absolutely. Mm. Okay, so we've got Khaki Town here. Um, what number book? Uh, 15. Mm-hmm. That's 15 cents, yes. Congratulations. Uh, game plus 14. Yeah. yeah, and growth every single year. Mm. Mm. Tell me about the book and where the idea came from. Uh, well, the idea actually came, I've, I've, I've put him a little bit of recognition in the front of the book from a beaut, uh, mate of mine and Bruce's. He was best man at our wedding, you know. Mm. The old Tell t- us who Bruce is. Uh, Bruce is my husband, Bruce Venables, you know, fellow <laughs> actor-writer, yes. Whom I know. Yes, 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 yes. naughty old Brucey. And, uh, and uh, Mick had written this 
story that he'd gleaned from surfing around the net, etc., um, about this particular incident during World War II in Townsville in 1942, when we were really under great threat of Japanese invasion, and um, and thousands upon thousands of American soldiers poured into Townsville, and there was this this riot, this virtual mutiny between yeah. the black and white American soldiers. Uh, and he'd unearthed this and he'd written this, uh, story called Ross River Fever. Uh, non-published, but it was, yeah. yeah and, uh, and, uh, he gave it to me to read. I said, that's, gee, that'd make a good basis for a, a full novel, just as a, a linchpin, you know. Yeah. But based the whole threat, uh, of invasion and everything all around it. And, and he said, yeah, go for it, dude, whatever you do. So it, oh. it did come from, from Mickey, actually. So I've put, you know, inspired by Ross River Fever, a short story by, by, by Michael Roberts. Um, but then, of course, I, I really wanted to delve into, uh, not only the ramifications that led from this particular incident, which has been kept a secret for 70 years, mm. uh, most certainly by governments and military on both sides, very much don't let this out, uh, so there's a nice little whistleblower element there that every novelist likes. And uh, very, very relevant. Yes, absolutely. But I also wanted to look, it, it's a novel very much, um, very much based around racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, racism on both sides. The American racism, because of course in those days, uh, their segregation uh, policies were well and truly, you know. In place. Uh, yeah. Yes. And so was the white Australia policy. From our point of view, uh, I mean, it's nothing to be proud of that the Australian government of the time said to President Roosevelt, "Oh yes, we we desperately need your soldiers. We obviously we the Japanese would have invaded if the Americans yeah. hadn't arrived. Uh, we need your, but we don't want you to send any black soldiers, only white soldiers. Mm-hmm. That's what. Uh, and Roosevelt, good on him, said, uh, if you don't want any black soldiers, you don't get any American soldiers. Period. That's it." Mm-hmm. So the Australians had to, the Australian government, I don't mean the Australian people, but we do, you know, the government, uh, our government. And uh, so the government had to, you know, naturally. And uh, so, but General MacArthur, Douglas MacArthur, who was the, the general commanding the forces in the Pacific arena, of course, uh, General MacArthur placated the Australian government by saying, uh, and bear in mind that there was no such term as African-American in those days. They were Negro soldiers, right, That which is not a word to use these days. But I've had to in the front of my book say, Look, please don't get offended by references here. It would yeah. not be historically accurate. So but MacArthur assured the Australian government, he said, um, we, we, we can assure you that uh, all Negro troops will be kept well away from urban areas and uh, we will have them out of your country as soon as possible. Oh, it doesn't ring very well for anybody, does it? No, it's, it doesn't. It's pretty disgraceful. So yeah. times fortunately have changed since then. But I wanted to draw these parallels of because, of course, when the American troops arrived and very, very many in those northern townships, which is where, of course, the Japanese were about to invade, uh, the very many of them were black troops. Uh, they were soldiers, but they were called battalion, uh, they were called labor units, battalions, yeah. these battalions, and they were there to build the infrastructure and the air strips, the airfields, and everything that was necessary uh, for the big American bombers and aircraft coming in and, and for the American forces. So there were a lot of black Americans arrived. Fortunately, it wasn't anywhere like the, the, the Australia. The, the, the people in Townsville, where I've set the novel and where I've researched, of course, 
they were only too happy to welcome these great, big, hulking, gorgeous-looking black American soldiers. Make them feel safe. Already they've got scorched-earth policies coming in, you know, like tear up your road maps and send all the cattle south so that there's no supply for the Japanese when they come in. There are all of these terrible things. So naturally they're only too happy to see these big, you know, healthy, strong, very polite gentlemen arrive. Uh, So the Australian government was a bit, you know, out of left field there as far as the citizens go. But when the black and white American soldiers were there, the white American soldiers, particularly as you can imagine, those from the south, they didn't like the black Americans having freedom of the city. The black Americans are going, where are all the signs saying for whites only, for blacks only? They can't believe that they can hop on a bus and sit next to a white bloke, that they can go to a pub and have a beer next to the, you know, mm. didn't bother the, the white Aussies, although the white Aussies, of course, were furious with the white Yanks, mm. oversexed, overpaid and over here, all those mm. wonderful things. Mm. That's true. There was a lot of aggression between the Aussies and the Americans because the Americans were paid three, four times more. And, uh, you know, they can eat their couple of steaks each day in the canteens and the Aussies are going out nicking eggs from the farmers. Because mm, they're hungry. Yeah. Uh, Judy Nunn, uh, it's your new book. Congratulations. I really like how every book is based on a, an element of truth, a story mm. that is real and a story that has happened. And Khaki Town's the same. Thank you so much. And I'm sure um, your readers are going to love it. Well, I hope they do, Cheryl. Thanks. I do carry on, don't I? No, I think you're very interesting. (laughs) Thank you so much, Judy. Thanks. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.